Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Hello, everyone. This is Gary Crump with the AOPA Pilot Information Center Medical Certification Group. This is one of our continuing PPS, Pilot Protection Services podcast. And today we're going to be visiting with one of my favorite senior AMEs, Dr. Brent Blue, out in the beautiful area called Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Hey, Brent, how's it going today? Just fine, Gary. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to join us on this. We try to make these educational, but not make them too boring by any means. But today we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the focus on uh, new student pilots or folks who have been out of aviation for a long time, like more than 20 years, and who are coming back into aviation will be making an application for, in some cases, their first ever application for a medical certificate or for those uh, rusty pilots that are coming back into it the first time in many years, and you'll probably uh, see that there have been a number of changes to the um, medical application now. Primarily, the big change, Brent, is the fact that it's now done online, the paper application that we used to fill out years ago on a clipboard in the AME's office went away probably seven or eight years ago. So as has gone the way of many federal and legal documents, the medical application is done online on the FAA website. So we'll probably touch on that a little bit more. We'll talk about some of the uh, the potential landmines that you can step on on the application. We'll talk a little bit about the process by which that application is transmitted by your aviation medical examiner to the FAA. But let's uh, start off, Brent, talking a little bit about a brand new first-time ever student pilot or wannabe student pilot who's never seen a medical application form before. They call in us and we can point them in the right direction to go to the FAA website and uh, set up their account and start that process. But you want to kind of take it from there, Brent, and talk about the application process and what, how you operate in your practice, your AME practice in uh, Jackson Hole, and maybe talk about some of the issues that you experience as an AME, particularly with first-time applicants or people even that have maybe applied for medical before and have a, a more colorful medical history that uh, is going to require a little bit more information. So you want to take it from there? Absolutely. The biggest problem that I run into is that pilots will fill out the 8500 form incorrectly. And it's because they're trying to be honest and they're trying to be correct, but they're interpreting some of the questions incorrectly. And that's always a problem. If a pilot has absolutely no medical problems, has never taken any medicines, is 18 years old and totally healthy, you know, it's usually not going to be an issue. But there are some difficult questions in there, and they can be up for interpretation and exactly how you report them. And one of the best things a pilot can do is talk to their AME before they have their AME exam and before they fill the 8500 form out online. And that's one of the problems with the electronic form now, is if you fill it out before you see your AME, it's difficult basically almost impossible to change. Now, if you do not give that number to the AME, then after 90 days, that form evaporates uh, into the ether and you can do it over again. But that's obviously a delay that you don't want to incur. But it's always better to ask the AME or to call the Pilot Protection Services line and ask the questions. 
Just for instance, yesterday I had a pilot, a potential pilot come in, a woman who's never had a exam, and she had questions because she self-referred herself to an alcohol program, but she did not have any DWIs, did not have any legal incursions and that sort of thing. And so the way she fills that form out is a lot different than if she had had DWIs or other problems. And the same thing goes with some folks where they'll come in and they'll say, well, gee, I had an appendectomy when I was five years old, and how do I write that down, and how do I get the medical records and all that? And you really don't need medical records on something like that. So just by preparing, by asking the questions either, as I said, from the AME or for pilot protection services, that can solve a lot of the prep problems. The other issue is the pilot has filled out the form, as long as they do not give that number to the AME, it doesn't become an official document. Once they give the number to the AME and the AME plugs that into the computer, then it belongs to the FAA, and that's where you no longer can apply for basic med until you've taken, in most cases, a third-class medical. So there's reasons to be hesitant about handing that number over to the AME until you're sure there's no problem. So that's that's one of the things that we run into quite a bit. Yeah, and let's just, uh, for somebody who's really looking at that application for the first time, let's just run them through that process because once you've completed the application, like Brent's explaining, and you submit it, that means it's, it's going to the FAA, but it's not really going to the FAA. It's sort of going into a holding pen, an electronic holding pen, and when you print out a copy of that application, and we always encourage pilots to print out a copy of the front part, the history part of the application that they've just completed for a number of reasons. But the main reason is if you want to refer to that application the next time you apply for a medical and you haven't made a hard copy of it, there's no way for you to look at what you reported on your previous application because you can't go back into the system and pull up your previous exams. Your AME may have held a hard copy in his or her file, but just to be on the safe side, always print out a copy of it. So when you do that, at the bottom of the page, that's the confirmation number that Brent's talking about. And once that number is input into the system by the AME, you're in it now. You can't back out. You've waded into the creek now, so it's going to go through and the FAA is going to have to work that application one way or the other. They're going to end up issuing your certificate, or the AME is. If the AME, for some reason, can't issue the medical, then it goes in as a deferral, and we're getting off on a little bit different track now, but the FAA then has the option to come back and ask for more information in order to get all the story to make sure you can be issued a medical, or they can issue a denial. So that confirmation number, like Brent is saying, is really important, and you don't want to you don't want to pull the trigger on that too soon. So we always suggest that you, if you've got issues on your application, maybe have an appointment prior to your actual flight physical or, and you can comment on this, Brent, sometimes the AMEs are more comfortable if you actually show up for the exam and just hold on to the confirmation number and then the doctor can look over the printed copy before he actually pulls that number out. How do you, how do you handle that, Brent? Well, we do it both ways. We always tell the pilots that if they have any questions or they're coming in with a potential special issuance or things like that, that they want to hold on to that number and talk to us beforehand. But the the other important point that you brought up is about printing out a hard copy is, is one of the things that triggers an FAA review is if you check something one way on one exam and then two years or five years later, you check it differently on the next exam. 
and that's one of the things that will trigger an FAA review. So if you if you trigger that you have allergies, or something as simple as allergies on one exam, and then the next time you don't check that, that can be an issue. So it's important to maintain a hard copy somewhere, even if you, you just take a photograph and keep it on your phone. Exactly. And actually, that's a good segue into another little side topic that we'll get off on, because we're going to do that quite a bit, probably veer off the tracks and then come back on. The system, the AMCS, it's called the Aerospace Medical Certification Subsystem. That's the system that the AMEs use in their offices to transmit information to the FAA. And right now, Brent, uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, but an AME who has a history with an airman cannot go back and look at previous exams when the pilot comes in with a new application. Is that still the case? That's still the case. They can see when the the exam occurred, but they can't look at the actual exam. Right. The FAA is now building a new system. It's called AMSIS, Aerospace Medical System Information System, or something like that. That's supposed to be online in like 2021 or something like that. That will replace the current system. And one of the things that supposedly that system will have is the AME's ability to look at previous exams. So that will be helpful because the AME is not going to know if you check something on a previous application and then check it differently, your AME is not going to be able to troubleshoot that for you and kind of fact check you. So it goes in and then if there's a discrepancy, the FAA is going to get back in touch with you and it may not be right away. If your AME issues your certificate, it goes in as an issued exam and it goes through kind of the back door and doesn't get an immediate review, but they do what's called quality assurance or quality control review of 100% of their application. So eventually they're going to get around to looking at that issued exam. And when they do that, if they see a discrepancy, they're going to generate a letter out to you asking for clarification on it. And it's something as simple as like, uh, like Brent said, allergies or hay fever, you checked it yes in the past, and then you checked it no on your most recent exam, they'll come back and be pretty polite about it, but they'll ask for clarification. So the key thing to remember is that the FAA specialists, they're called legal instrument examiners, reviewers we call them, that review these applications are extremely meticulous, and they don't miss very much. So if they pick up any type of discrepancy, you're going to hear from them. So that's a real, real important thing to keep in mind. Brent, let's talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls that we've already mentioned, some of the pitfalls in the medical application. And I'll mention that here a few months ago, the FAA published in the Federal Register, that's kind of the the government electronic newsletter where they publish all kinds of rulemakings and requests for comments and, and dispositions of different things. The FAA published a request for comments regarding changes to the FAA medical application and it was in the context more of requests for information about how the FAA collects information and how long it takes to complete that information and what value that the FAA gains from that information. But they were specifically interested in their FAA medical application form. Online, it's called MedExpress, but it's form 8500-8. And AOPA responded in a very lengthy comment to their request for comments dealing with some of the underlying discrepancies and things that we think are just downright, eh, I won't say sneaky, but I'll say very, very confusing about the application. And and Brent, you've touched on some of those things, but ideally we see problems that occur in three areas of the application. One is the use of medications, item 17A on the application. 
because the form very specifically says, are you currently using any medications? And it never fails that somebody calls us after the fact when they reported a medication that they used to take and they haven't taken for a long time. So that obviously generates a request for more information. And then item 18, what that we've been talking about, the medical history section, and there's what, 25 or six or something items on that section of the application. And then item 19 is where you report visits to health professionals. And that's where it gets a little dicey as well. So Brent, you want to talk about maybe about item 19 and uh, how you interpret visits to health professionals within the context of being reasonable versus what the FAA is asking for? Well, it's very important that pilots think about how they're answering these questions. And answering the question in 18, I'll give you a classic example. Many times I've had pilots check that they have heart disease in 18, and they get down to the explanation. And what ended up happening was they went to an emergency room with chest pain. They had every test in the book. The emergency room physician stated they did not have any cardiac chest pain. This was a musculoskeletal problem. They heard it playing football or baseball or something like that, and they're discharged home. Well, they need to report that visit in that section 19, but in 18, that's not heart disease. You don't check that you have heart disease because you had all these tests that proved you didn't have heart disease. So that's an important distinction because there's no reason to report something that's not true. And this situation happens a lot. I mean, it's amazing to me how many pilots will check something that is just erroneous in 18, and then that just creates a lot of confusion. And if that does happen, one of the important points for the pilot to make to the doc is when they discuss this issue, is it's important for the AME in their comment section. Now, this is a section the pilot doesn't see but it's in an area where the the AME makes comments, that the AME explain the discrepancy on why that check mark in 18 may be wrong or is wrong and what the pilot really meant. And the classic one we always see is pilots that check that they use contact lenses for near vision. Everybody checks that wrong. And it's one of those things that if you wear contacts for distant vision, but you can read a book with them, that doesn't mean you need the contact to read the book. And those are the kinds of things we run into all the time. Right. And I'm I'm looking online at the MedExpress application right now, so we can look at some real-time examples here. On that section 17, where they're asking about near vision contact lenses, it's actually part of 17, which is 17A, which is asking about your current use of medications. So in this particular case, the near vision contact lens was triggered I believe, by an NTSB accident investigation from years ago where the FAA got chastised because allegedly the pilot was wearing near-vision contact lenses, and that was considered to be a contributing factor to a crash. So NTSB issued a recommendation, and the FAA basically said, okay, we'll make the change. However, on the online application, it's all about real estate in creating these web forms. So they didn't really have room on the form to put it anywhere else. So they crowded it in under item 17A and then uh, stuck in, you know, this little 17B question about contact lenses. So that's just a little aside there. But if you go to item 18 now, let's just go back to 18G, heart or vascular trouble, Brent, like you were just talking about. Now, one of the things that we're not particularly happy about and that we commented on about extensively in the 
Federal Register comments that we just filed a couple of weeks ago was the use of a little drop-down menu that the FAA plugged in to the form really fairly recently, and they kind of, I won't say they sneaked it in, but uh, it wasn't well publicized until it was already done. And what that means is that each item on the application has a little plus icon next to that particular item. And for item 18G, which is the one we're talking about that says, have you ever in your life been diagnosed with, had, or do you presently have a history of heart or vascular trouble? Anytime I see the word trouble, it just kind of annoys me because how do you define trouble, Brent? Exactly. I mean, and and, uh, you know, 25% of children will have a murmur at some point during their life, and that's not considered a heart problem. But under the FAA's questioning, you might check that as yes when it really doesn't need to be checked as yes. Exactly. And to that point, when you click on, if you click on that plus icon. And that's another one of the things that a lot of pilots don't, they don't know what that plus sign is. So they, they're going through the form like they've always done in the past with no explanation. But if you click on that icon and it's kind of long, I'm going to read this because it's important because this is one of the examples of the things that we're not happy about. If you click on that icon, you get another little drop down display underneath there here that says, for example, angina, heart pain, coronary heart disease, heart attack, myocardial infarction, abnormal rhythm, atrial fibrillation, cardioversion, cardiac failure, congestive heart failure, heart enlargement, cardiac decompensation, hypertrophy or dilation of the heart, pulmonary hypertension, heart valve disease, heart valve repair or replacement, pacemaker, anti-tachycardia device, implantable defibrillator, (laughs) congenital heart disease, endocarditis, heart inflammation, pericarditis, or heart transplant. Wow. Yeah, and the the thing that's actually the most concerning there is when they say heart trouble, because Uh what does that mean? I mean, from Mm -hmm. a medical perspective, that means nothing. I mean, I could have a broken heart from a bad relationship. Uh, Does that mean I have heart trouble? I mean, exactly. exactly. it's It's just crazy. Yeah, somewhere in our comments, we counted the number of additional words in this already extensively wordy medical application. And I think it added something like almost 900 additional words by these this drop down. But this is kind of the extreme example. But the average pilot out there, they may have been to their cardiologist and they may have one of these diagnoses, but how many of them really know that they may have hypertrophy or cardiac decompensation? Their doctors may not have told them that. So right there, I think that's a huge landmine and a hole to fall in for somebody that really is appropriately ignorant of his or her medical diagnosis and has the potential to fall into this trap and incorrectly report something on the application. So every one of these items here has this little drop-down menu, except in part two where they ask about military medical discharge, medical rejection by military service. And another thing we'll want to talk about, Brent, and remind me is the medical disability benefits because that's another really hot button that's uh, really big right now. In fact, maybe we should just talk about it before I forget about it. The FAA is particularly interested in, obviously, mental health conditions. And a question that's always been on the form is medical disability benefits. And as a result of many years ago, the FAA actually joined forces with the Social Security Administration. This was back in the early, mid to late 90s, in uh, an investigation called Operation Safe Pilot in which the FAA joined forces with the Social Security Administration to identify 
airman medical applicants who had failed to disclose that they were receiving Social Security medical disability benefits. Some of those turned out to be pretty serious medical conditions for which they were being compensated, mental health issues and uh, serious heart problems, that sort of thing. So um, even though it, they cast a wide net, I don't recall all the details, and I, but I do believe that several thousand pilots were identified and they actually prosecuted two or three pilots for a falsification of their medical application. And now the FAA has repeating that program with the Veterans Administration because we have so many military personnel separating from the military and who have been in combat since we've been at war for so many years and have received, among other things, PTSD disability benefits. So now this investigation with the VA is ongoing, just like Operation Safe Pilots. So that's one thing that uh, pilots really want to be aware of is, is not underreport that medical disability benefits because the FAA, we understand, has ability to cross-match those VA records now. And if somebody doesn't disclose that they're receiving benefits from the VA, they're, they're going to be receiving a letter. Right. So, Yeah, but it's also easy for people to forget because sometimes if they have disability benefit because they lost hearing in one ear but easily passed the pilot medical exam, they may exactly. just not remember that, it's, that that is even an issue because it's such a minor. I mean, you can also have you know, a, a bad D that doesn't affect your ability to walk or fly, but you get pain and uh, get disability benefits for that. And a lot of people just don't think of that when they walk into a physician's office for a pilot medical. That's exactly right. And that, again, swerves into another point that I think is really important. Anything that's reported in the affirmative, anything new, let's say, on an application and it's for first time or everything's new. So any yes responses, if you're taking any medications that are maybe off the wall other than like blood pressure medicine or something, or cholesterol meds or something like that, any other medications for a specific diagnosis or any yes responses in the medical history section, or if uh, you've seen a specialist other than your primary care physician or a chiropractor or whatever, in the uh, item 19, the visits to health professionals, it's a huge benefit to your AME, who in some cases has never seen you before and doesn't know anything about your history. If you provide some type of medical documentation when you go in to see the AME, because otherwise, you know, the AME may not feel real comfortable issuing a certificate to you based on what you provide him. But if you have some good documentation, Brent, is, is that good advice? That's excellent advice. And the other issue that comes up with that is that the FAA has started a program several years ago called CACI, that's Conditions AMEs Can Issue, right. where if you bring the proper, if the pilot brings the proper documentation, the AME can issue a medical right there on the spot when in previous years that information would have to be sent to the FAA. And so it's important to check if the pilot has any kind of medical issue. A classic one is kidney stones. If you've had kidney stones, you can qualify under that khaki program, but you have to bring in the documentation. Same thing with hypothyroidism and hypertension. I mean, they're pretty simple forms in the sense of saying it's basically a physician, for the most part, saying that you're healthy and not having any problems and not having side effects from medication. But you, you need a letter many times, and you may need some other documentation. So it's important to check that. And that's all available online. It's also available from the folks at the Pilot Protection Services who you can call and ask what you might need to bring in at the time of the exam. 
Yeah, exactly right. And those khakis now, there are now, uh, I think there are 19 conditions. They just added one here in the last, probably the last month or so. So these are conditions, as Brent said, that used to be special issuances. That that means that the AME had to defer your application. The hypertension wasn't one of those. It was always an office issuance. But the other conditions used to require a special issuance. So to the FAA's credit, they have eliminated a lot of the extra work for the pilot and for the AME and for the FAA aeromedical staff as well by uh, shortcutting these conditions and putting them under the under the khaki program. So that's a good thing. But still, it's just a good idea to have documentation and certainly give us a call if you have a condition and you're not sure what to report. In most cases, we can give you the basics anyway. We use the word status report. The FAA asks for that an awful lot. And that's basically a, a letter from your treating doctor just saying what you've been seen for, what's the diagnosis, how are you being treated, if you're on medications, what medications, and what's your dosages and frequency of use, and are you tolerating the medications okay? But a lot of those things can be office-issued. Fortunately, Brent, not too many applicants get deferred. I mean, we, when we say out of like 460,000-some-odd applications that are done by the FAA every year, probably about 30,000 of those end up going in as deferrals, maybe a little bit more than that, which means the AME can't issue it in the office or doesn't issue for whatever reason. So uh, right. then the FAA has to come back and ask for that information. So it just, if you don't get anything else out of this podcast, if you just remember to provide some kind of a letter explaining what you're noting on the medical application, that may be the difference right there in an office issuance by your AME or a deferral into deferral hell when it goes in for review because that's taking about 90 days now on average. The FAA has been in a backlog forever, but ever, especially since the government shut down late last year, almost a year ago. So they're still trying to dig out from that backlog. So deferrals are are bad. Right. And the other issue is pick your AME carefully. Uh, Mm -hmm. I always get in trouble when I say this, but there are some AMEs that, that just don't really work very hard for the pilot. And what I mean by that is is it's very easy for the AME to just defer a pilot's medical. It's just a matter of checking a box and they're out of the picture. Where exactly. uh, many times if the AME goes a little bit extra, does a little bit more investigation, holds on to the exam, which we can do for up to 10 days to collect some more data, and can avoid having to send or defer the exam to the FAA, that really makes a big, big difference. So it's good to ask around to other pilots who the, who good AMEs are, who the AMEs are that might be pilots, because they, they tend to be uh, work pretty hard for, for their fellow pilots. But it's important to check on that, because being deferred, the biggest problem is you just get into the morass of paperwork and sometimes unnecessary testing. At least it's unnecessary from a medical perspective. The FAA doesn't think it's unnecessary, but exactly. well, many physicians do. But it's it's important to, to avoid deferrals at all costs if you legally can. Yeah, for sure. So it's just do your homework before you go in. Brent, as you mentioned, the AMEs can hold an application for 10 business days, and that means that gives you a little bit of leeway. However, what we have found, and this goes back to picking your AME carefully, a lot of AMEs don't do that, and uh, they just defer it probably the same day or within just a few days, and then the pilot shows up you know, within that 10-day time period with the necessary information, and it's already been deferred. So Again, you know, you got to kind of know your AME pretty well and hope that that AME is going to be kind of in your corner and being an advocate for you, as well as, you know, the AME doing his job. But 
part of being a good AME is being an advocate for the pilot as well as enforcing the regulations and appropriately issuing certificates to keep the FAA happy as well. One of the things, Gary, I think that we wanted to bring up that was important is that if a pilot is considering basic med, they can fill the 8500-8 form out online, but not to give the number to the AME until they decide whether they want to go for a third-class medical or whether they want to go for basic med. Because once they enter that number, they can't do basic med. And a lot of pilots, I will discuss with them, why they want a third class. I know what I know they're flying, you know, a Piper Cub around locally and they never go into Canada and they they don't fly over 18,000 feet and that sort of thing. Right. And I say why don't, why don't right. you go the basic med and then you only have to do this exam every 4 years and you just take the AOPA's course online every 2 years and then it's a done deal. And and a lot of times it's still even though basic med's two and a half years old, there are a lot of pilots that just misunderstand what what basic med can do for them. And from my perspective, if you meet the qualifications in the sense of flying, uh, you know, less than five passengers and uh, under eighteen thousand feet and so on, I mean, basic med is the way to go. It keeps you out of a morass of paperwork that the FAA requires sometimes for really minor issues. And there are only three categories that basic med does not cover. So I really encourage pilots to go to basic med unless they don't qualify under those three categories. Yeah, and a great point on that. And and I just want to reiterate that again because it's such a great point. These are two distinctly different pathways. Basic med has nothing at all to do with a medical certificate. It's a completely different part of the regulations. Basic med is overseen by the Flight Standards Division of the FAA rather than the Office of Aerospace Medicine. So when that that confirmation number, if you go in and do the application and then show up at your AME, and this is particularly a problem when an AME is also doing basic med exams. And I think you're one of those, Brent, right? Don't you do basic med? I do basic med. That's correct. Yeah, exactly. So you know, fortunately, Brent knows the difference, but a lot of AMEs and their office staffs particularly don't always understand what basic med means. So if you show up to an AME's office with the expectation that you're going to do a basic med exam and they tell you, oh, you got to have a confirmation number, turn around and leave <laughs> because <laughs> they don't know what you're, they don't know what they're talking about. They right. want that confirmation number because they think you're in there for a flight physical, a third class medical exam or whatever class. So that's really, really, really important. The other news I'll just share, this is fairly new, but um, a lot of people are still not aware of it, that Basic Med will now come December the 10th, I believe, pilots will be able to fly into Mexico with their Basic Med qualifications. So that's uh, the most recent news about Basic Med. One more thing on that, we're up to almost 52,000 pilots who have qualified for Basic Med. So that's uh, one of the great success stories for general aviation here in the probably in the last 15 or 20 years anyway. So uh, a lot of good things going on, but we still have to deal with this issue of this medical application form. So uh, anything, any final comments you'd like to like to make to somebody that may be looking at this for the first time? Well, I, I really think that the most important thing is what we started out with, and that is if you have questions, ask for help. Go to the Pilot Protection Services, call your AME, talk to fellow pilots, but be sure you have the information before you fill that 8500-8 form out and put something down there that shouldn't be down there or put that down incorrectly. You know, ask the questions and keep yourself out of trouble. 
Yeah, absolutely. Do your homework. You know, it's like planning a long cross country. You want to, you want to pre-plan that. So do that with your medical too. So that's great advice and, and give us a call. We're in the office 830 to 6, five days a week, and, and this is what we do. This is our area of expertise within the Pilot Information Center is to help pilots with anything dealing with medical certification. But for uh, those of us that want a, a medical certificate, that process always begins with a, a new medical application. Brent, it's been a pleasure having you with us today. It's always great to have conversations with others who are out there fighting the fight. Sometimes we think we're all alone here trying to put up with all of this, and yet we go to meetings and we hear other AMEs, you know, they're harping about the same things that we are. So enough of us uh, complaining out there. Maybe we'll get changes down the road that'll make the system better for everybody. But I uh, appreciate you being with us, Brent. Good talking with you, and uh, y'all fly safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.